0: at this time the uh, children 15 months through preschool may be dismissed to Emmaus Road kids. And the rest of you I invite to turn in your Bibles or in your electronic devices to the book of Exodus. We're going to be giving our attention to Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2. As I was thinking back to the season in our life when my wife and I were fully occupied with parenting, certainly one of the main things that we grappled with was, how do we get these boys to obey us? Um, Before they would obey us, they needed to be able to hear us. Before they would obey us, they needed to understand us. The word "no" was a necessary building block in their developing vocabulary. Before they would obey us, they needed to know that they could trust us, trust that we loved them, trust that we knew them, were committed to what was best for them. Before they would obey us consistently, they needed to know that there would be consequences for disobeying. Raising and training children is one of the most, I don't have to say it, but I will, demanding, exhausting, challenging and exhilarating tasks in all the world. And it's because the task of child-rearing, it brings us face-to-face with the human condition. The human condition mainly that says, we don't like anybody telling us what we can and cannot do. And further, as we now move into this next section of the book of Exodus, and in particular, we're going to engage with one of the most famous sections of all the Bible, what many would consider one of the most important pieces of religious literature in all the world, namely the Ten Commandments, we are brought face to face with the very heart of the human condition, namely, we don't like God telling us what we can and cannot do. A few years ago, CNN reported a special interest story on what research executives termed the 10 non-commandments of our age. This is so classic. Um, But I I think a fairly accurate assessment of what what people come up with who who don't like God or anybody else for that matter telling them what they can and cannot do. So here's what this, this is a crowdsourced research. They just polled everybody and then the, the, the top answers came to the to the forefront, the ten non-commandments of our age. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely to be true and not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Four. Every person has the right to control of their body. Five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Six, be mindful of the consequences of all your actions. Recognize that you must take responsibility for them. This next one is probably goes without saying, but treat others as you would want them to treat you and can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Have the, we have the responsibility to consider others including future generations. This is a really good one. There is no one right way to live. And finally, leave the world a better place than you found it. You, you have a summary right there. That, that is, that's, that's the moral code. That one arrives at listening to and taking the temperature of everybody around you. But according to the Bible, the way to find moral instruction that really reflects true and enduring wisdom. It's not by listening to your gut. But by listening to God. And that is what we are about to do. So, as an expression of our... Regard for what God has to say. If you're able, please stand. Please stand, follow along. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of Exodus 20, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, Your neighbors. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh God, of all of the ways that you would see fit to reveal your active, personal, dynamic, powerful, transforming presence among your people. Perhaps the most significant that we will encounter here is the way you reveal yourself through your word. So would you bring the power of your Holy Spirit to bear upon us so that the eyes of our hearts would be opened our ears would be opened, our hearts would be opened to hear you and to receive you and to respond to your, what you have said in a way that's appropriate, in a way that brings you honor and glory, in a way that would magnify our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2 answer the question, why obey the Ten Commandments? Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 serves as the foundation, the ground for obedience, to the obedience of God's people to God's Word. And, and I believe a fair, summary of, a fair summary answer to that question is, God's people love and obey God's Word? God, they they love and obey God because God first loved them. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, we see that the Ten Commandments are rooted in God's character, who He is. The Ten Commandments are rooted also in God's saving acts, what He has done. These two verses are utterly essential in getting the answer right to the question, why obey God? The Ten Commandments. and God's people love and obey God because of who He is and because of what He has done. So first, the Ten Commandments are rooted in God's character. Who is this God? Remember the setting. According to Exodus 19, there's there's thunder and there is lightning and there is smoke, and there is fire, and the mountain, Mount Sinai itself, is trembling. And the people, they are standing in awe, and they're trembling, but they're safely, they've been safely positioned by God at the foot of the mountain. They are forbidden from coming any closer, lest their sinfulness comes in contact with God's holiness, and they suffer the death penalty. It's because the wages of sin is death. And then, the Lord himself appears in a thick cloud, and just when one cannot imagine anything more dramatic, something more dramatic happens. The Lord himself speaks to the Israelites. And it's worth noticing that the the awesome appearance of God in unapproachable holiness with all its accompanying phenomena it is it's not the ultimate revelation that god gives to his people in this moment the lord doesn't he doesn't descend in order simply to overwhelm them with shock and awe i mean if that's all god intended was just to generate shivers and chicken skin and scare them and grieve them to tears, well then thunder and lightning and thick smoke and fire and earthquake would have been sufficient. But feelings alone, whether they're feelings of awe and wonder or feelings of terror and shame, those are not the end. God reveals himself to his people by speaking to them Personally and audibly. Never lose sight of this. God's personal word. God's personal word is a far more significant illustration of God's glorious presence. And all that he is than anything that we will ever see in nature. According to verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying..." The narrator distinguishes this divine speech from all the previous divine speech as God communicates Himself directly directly to the Israelites rather than through Moses. There's no mediator this time. They get to hear God, even though He's in a cloud. So for the Israelites, this moment is unlike any previous experience they have had of God and His glory. Because right now, right here at Sinai, the people heard, they heard not only the words of God, they actually heard the voice of God. And in verse 2, God introduces Himself to His people saying, I am the Lord. Your God. He introduces himself here by his personal name, Yahweh. It's the name by which God had introduced himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3. It is distinguished by spelling it, as you can see in the English translation, all capital letters, L-O-R-D. I am. This is the great I am who is speaking. This is the sovereign, self-existent God, Lord over all, saying, I am the Lord, your God. He is the one. He's the one speaking. He's the one who has made covenant promises to his people. And he is, right now, dynamically and actively present. He has come down. And he is the God who is speaking. And he is the God who has acted. He is the God who creates He is the one who keeps his promises to his people. This is the wedding ceremony. I, Yahweh, take you to be my people. And what is particularly stunning is that the Lord addresses the people using the second person singular pronoun. Yes, there are times when pronouns are a big deal. I am the Lord, your God. Second person singular. And God uses the second person singular pronoun in order to communicate that he has a personal relationship with his people. And this is particularly amazing in light of What we've seen so far of this people, they're grumbling, whining, arrogantly complaining, testing God rather than humbly trusting God. So so God's doing more than addressing them together as a single nation. He is addressing them individually as well. It's as though God is making personal eye contact with each one of them. This is is God's covenant to his bride. He is communicating personal affection and loyalty to each one of them. This is the covenant that he has made to each one here. Each one here who trusts and takes him to be their God. I am the Lord, your God. I'm the Lord, your God. I'm the Lord your God and your God. I'm the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God and your God. I'm the Lord your God. Isn't that way more significant and meaningful than thunder and lightning and a towering inferno? And and, and the God, and then God describes how, how they met each other. <laughs> Again, this is like what we do at weddings. It tells how they got acquainted and how they came into this relationship. The second half of verse 2 says, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is not only their Lord and God, He is also their redeemer, their rescue out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It was all, all of it was his doing. And again, it's it's in the second person singular pronoun. He brought you out. He brought you out and you out. He brought you out and you out. He brought you out and you out and you out. He brought you out. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And your rescue, your deliverance was all because of divine initiative and divine intervention. It was completely and entirely because of divine action. This is so crucial. Because you see, the basis, the foundation, the foundation for the Ten Commandments, it's rooted in in who God is, God's character, and in what God has done. The Ten Commandments are rooted in God's saving acts. You see that? Exodus chapter twenty, verses one and two. There, There are no commands. There there are no imperatives. There is no law. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, therefore, then the commands come. After the recounting of all that God has done to save, after this review of all that God has done to rescue and deliver and bring them out and free them, it's not until after all that God has done that God lays down the stipulations of this ongoing relationship because, you see, God's sovereign grace is the bedrock of his relationship with his people. We were hopelessly, and helplessly in bondage, utterly incapable of liberating ourselves. It was God who had graciously given his covenant promises to Abraham, who is now the one who has fulfilled those promises by his powerful and decisive deliverance of his people from their enslavement to this Egyptian superpower. And, and, and here's what is so significant. Before issuing the Ten Commandments, the Lord purposely and intentionally reminds His people of who He is and what He has done for them. Before God gives His people the law, He reminds them it is He who has graciously redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's a divine order here. A divine order revealed here that creates, it creates an environment of grace. For everything that follows in the giving of the law. Listen, God's gracious act of salvation precedes his call to obedience. And this divine order must never be forgotten. Not now, not ever. Or ever. So listen, parents. According to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20, a time's gonna come. A time's gonna come when your kids are gonna say something like this. Why? Why do we need to obey? Why do we need to keep these rules? Why do we need to keep these commands? And you will be tempted, especially on days when you're really, really tired, to say something like, because I said so. And that's when you're going to want to remember this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. When your son or daughter asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? And then you shall say to your son or daughter, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed us signs and wonders. Great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh. And he brought us out of there. Out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always. You see, it's, it's not it's not ultimately helpful to tell our children to obey just because we say so. The first thing we tell them, the first thing we retell them, the first thing we review with them, rehearse with them, revisit with them again and again and again is the story of God's great saving work. The first thing is the gospel. And that's because children will only understand the role of God's law and the purpose of God's law by first hearing, or by hearing again and again and again and again, the story of the rescue. And they will not, they they cannot love and obey God until they first experience His Saving acts. So when calling for and enforcing obedience, don't forget the gospel. Don't forget God and his gracious and saving acts. That's the foundation. God and his gracious saving acts are what generate an environment of grace. Forgiving the law. The starting point for gospel-powered parenting and and a gospel-powered spiritual community. Gospel-powered lives. It's the gospel. So tell them over and over. Sing it over and over. Preach it over and over. We were all slaves to sin Slaves to disobedience. When you and I act out in our sinful, willful disobedience, do you not see how it reveals the helplessness that's in our souls? Moms and dads are helpless to set their own hearts free. And we are helpless to set our children's hearts free. But God... Oh, but God, God can set your heart free from your slavery to sinning. Cry out to Him. Cry out, He will deliver you. Call in His name. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Grace precedes and informs the giving of the law. It precedes and informs and in flames, the keeping of God's law, His good, wise, and loving law. What, t- what took place at Sinai in the giving of the law cannot be rightly understood without this reminder of their redemption and their deliverance by God's free and sovereign and sufficiently powerful hand. So this, is, this is why, you know, just... you know. It, hanging a plaque on our wall with the 10 commandments by itself is it's just incomplete it's incomplete without verses 1 and 2 it's well intended as it is but apart from Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 apart from the gospel of God's saving sovereign Acts informing, inflaming our wills to keep His commands. God's law alone and by itself is misrepresented. And so Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2, it it provides both the reason and the motivation that God's people need to keep the commands that follow. The the Ten Commandments are rooted in the character of God, namely who He is, and the Ten Commandments are rooted in the saving acts of God, what He has done. Now, listen carefully. Here's why this is so, so significant. The Ten Commandments are not a condition For becoming God's people. They are already God's people. These commands were not delivered to the Israelites in Egypt while they were still in the house of slavery. As some condition for getting out of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. If if these commandments were given to them while they were in Egypt as a condition for getting out of Egypt. They would still be in Egypt. Egypt. Their redemption is not a reward for keeping God's commands. There is no place in the book of Exodus where there is even the slightest suggestion that the Israelites were rescued because of their, their, their faithfulness to or their compliance with God's law. The reason for their deliverance, it was solely due to the Lord's love and mercy and kindness, and freedom. As an an unconverted adolescent, I, I, I so clearly remember perceiving that a Christian was somebody who did not do certain things. As a Christian... A Christian was was distinguished by this list of don'ts and a few do's. And and at some point, after I had decided to be a Christian, I would tell my testimony through that same same framework. I, I, I used to disobey my parents. I used to use bad language. I used to tell little white lies. I used to get angry at my sister. Oh, but now I've changed I really got myself straightened out only to prove what a slave I really was to self-righteousness. Loved ones, what God says to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2, He says to each and every Christian, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And only... Only if you are a Christian, you have been rescued from a far more serious slavery than the Egyptian slavery. Because if you are a Christian, you have been rescued from a more serious bondage. A slavery, a bondage to sin with eternal consequences. Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 points to a future saving experience in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It points to the announcement and the fulfillment of the gospel. The good news of what has been done by Jesus Christ so that one can be pardoned from the guilt of sin and reconciled to God. The gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is decidedly about what has been graciously done for us. The gospel is an announcement. The gospel is the news of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. The gospel of who he is for us in Christ. The gospel is what God has done for us in Christ. Repentance and faith, of course, are a fitting response to the gospel. But repentance and faith are not the gospel. Obedience to God's commands have an appropriate rep- a place in response to the gospel, godliness, good works are the fruit and the effect of the gospel in the life of someone who has had their heart set free by God. None of those fruits and effects of the gospel are the gospel. And, and so you see, there, there's a distinct and necessary difference between the gospel and our response to the gospel. What Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 and 2 point us to is the ultimate fulfillment of God's covenant promise in Christ through His perfect life, His perfect obedience, and the death that He died in our place on the cross. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another, but... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So when God says to his people, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. Friends, that that is the foundation that informs the giving of and inspires the keeping of the Ten Commandments. And it points to the gospel of what God has done in Christ to rescue sinners like me and you. And the effect of the gospel, the effect of The new covenant is a transformed heart. A heart made free and alive unto glad obedience to God's good and wise commands. Listen. We love and obey God because he first loved us. We gladly obey his commands because he has first rescued us through Jesus' death on the cross In our place for our sins. And therefore, his commandments are not burdensome. That's because they're not a a means or a condition of earning his love. It's rather because they are the appropriate response to the experience of his undeserved love poured out, revealed in and through the gospel of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, for every, every person in this room today who in some way feel like they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Wondering if they're going to get taken out. Wondering if there's any safety. Wondering if there's any relief. I pray, O Lord, that By your Spirit, you might reveal to us again and magnify to us again and again and again that that you, O God, have, have punished our sins in the body of your Son. Lord Jesus, we trust in you, in you alone. Complete atonement you have made. Complete atonement. No wrath remains. And so now, Lord, I pray that in the fullness of the kindness that you have shown, our appropriate response to what you have done would be repentance and faith, godly fear, and glad obedience to all that you have commanded us to do for your name's sake. Amen.